Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Bradley W. Hart on the show. Dr. Hart has a master's in philosophy from St. Andrews and a PhD from Cambridge University. In 2018, he published the book Hitler's American Friends, which won the German Studies Association Sybil Halpern Milton Book Prize. That's a long name for a prize. Dr. Hart is currently an associate professor at Fresno State. This is one of those wide-ranging podcasts where we wander intellectually across a variety of topics. I hope you enjoy it, and Baker will take us there. So, Brad, where do you like to eat in Fresno? You know, I'm kind of an old school guy. I love the limelight. Um, I love the elbow room. I love Richard's downtown. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of prime rib, as you can probably tell. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to have gone to a lot of places in my life. I think Fresno is some of the best food in the world. So, so a great place to be eating. Really? That's, that's not a common opinion, Fresno having some of the best food that you've had. Um, so I've, I've actually, I'm embarrassed to say I've never been to the elbow room. What, what, uh, what do you like to get there? Well, you know, I think what makes Fresno food so great is, is the farm to fork uh, ability that we really have in the Central Valley because we produce all that food. But uh, I, lo- I love steaks. I love, you know, good old fashioned American cooking. So, uh, you know, limelight uh, for the prime rib, elbow room for a good steak or a burger and, uh, and Richard's for the prime rib too. You kind of have to move beyond a certain thing in Fresno where, you know, I, I think people, they, they figure out that there's two or three good restaurants and then they just stick with that and they just kind of get trapped in the circle. Um, and it's, and it's just because it's comfortable, you know, where you're driving to, you know, what you like to order. Um, and like you said, there's all these places that, uh, have a lot of good options that's fresh and local, but if, unless you go outside of your neighborhood or go outside where you're maybe feel like you have to lock your car or something like that, you know, that's, that's where you'll oftentimes find the good food. Absolutely. So um, I appreciate you coming on to talk to me. Uh, We're going to talk about some interesting stuff today, uh, stuff that uh, is maybe a bit heady, but I I think is interesting and relevant. Um, And I want to start talk by talking about conservatives. Um, uh, Conservatism um, and conservatives are two different things. Um, people often conflate them, uh, but they are different things. And there are different kinds of conservatives all across, uh, all across the world. Um, being a conservative in India is different than being a conservative in the United States, just like even Great Britain, which you know, our country is tied to in many ways and many of our de- ideas about government come from uh, Great Britain. Nonetheless, there's a lot of differences. Um, as someone that studied uh, conservatism um, on that side of the pond, uh, what are some of the key or most notable differences that you would say between uh, conservatives in the United Kingdom and conservatives uh, in the United States? It's a really great and fascinating question. And if you asked me this question probably five years ago, I would have given a slightly different answer probably, um, because I think conservatism in Great Britain has changed quite a bit. And as background, I, I did quite a bit of research on this during my PhD, which I did at Cambridge. 
and then edited a, a book on this with a colleague of mine uh, looking at exactly this, this question a number of years ago now, actually. But, you know, I think one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the Conservative Party in Britain, which is, which is actually called the Conservative Party, they're actually uh, sometimes referred to as Tories, uh, which you may remember from American Revolution classes, um, in a not very flattering sense, actually. The Conservative they don't like Party, that term, right? Um, they don't reject it necessarily. It's kind of, kind of a nickname, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of thrown around as a disparaging term as well. So, so it can go either way there. Um, yeah. So we have to remember the conservative party is actually the oldest political party in Britain. I mean, it's a party that actually traces its roots back to the glorious revolution, 1688, and even a bit before that. Um, and, and the conservative party fundamentally has a, a, a pro monarchy, orientation traditionally. So it, it believes in, in the monarchy and the institutions of the crown and things of that sort. And I bring that up because we have to remember that the Republican Party is actually the newer of our two political parties in this country. It actually only, only dates back to the 1860s with the election of Abraham Lincoln. The Democratic Party traces itself back to, to Thomas Jefferson, although you know, great historical debate as to how much of a legacy Jeffersonian, uh, Jeffersonian politics still has in the Democratic Party today. But, but I think it's a really important distinction because the, the British Conservative Party really roots itself in, in traditions of monarchy, traditional views of Britain as a world power, um, hawkish defense policy, um, sort of, sort of, and and the church as well. We have to remember that the Church of England is actually an established church, and so the Conservative Party traditionally very much in favor of established religion in that sense. The Republican Party comes from a different set of traditions, um, and the way that the term conservative is often used in this country doesn't often have that much alignment with the way that it's used in Britain, for instance. Um, I, I think it's fair to say American conservatives root themselves in in what they see as American traditions as well, but those are very different traditions than the monarchy and the church, certainly. Uh, and so I think this, this leads to kind of disparate, disparate outcomes. Um, up until Brexit in 2016, one of the common things that was said about the British Conservative Party was that it really didn't have an ideology. It didn't really have even a coherent set of views. It was simply opposed to radical change in that sense. Post-Brexit and the arrival of Boris Johnson, many commentators, uh, and I think I agree with this, would say that the British Conservative Party now does have an ideology, which is based in Brexit, based on the idea of, of restoring British greatness on the world stage, some, some sense of, of imperial, uh, perhaps ambitions as well there. Um, and so I think the British Conservative Party has become much more ideological. Um, at the same time, I think you might be able to say the Republican Party has become perhaps slightly less ideological. I mean, certainly more focused around, um, around former President Trump and, and personality politics to some extent than, than even a, a platform at this point. So, so you might say the parties have sort of gotten closer together in that sense by, by both moving away from their, from their traditions. You know, it's, it's such an interesting thing because it's changed. I mean, conservatives in the United States used to be one thing. And just in the same way that, you know, you're describing that there's a, a more distinct ideology with British conservatives, um, there, it certainly has changed. Um, would you agree with that characterization? It's more political versus religious? Yeah, I think that's right. I, the, other, the other counterpoint here is that the term liberal also has very different connotations in, yes. in European politics, right? Liberals um, in European politics often are laissez-faire, anti-government intervention, sort of pro-business um, but also opposed government intervention in, in people's personal lives. So we're uh, 10 years ago when issues like gay marriage were still very um, potent in politics, opposed 
um, banning gay marriage and things of that sort. So, so a lot of European countries, I mean, Germany and, and actually Great Britain too, have liberal parties that sort of sit in a, a third position versus the traditional left and the traditional right. So this is something that, that when I was teaching British history um, around, around Fresno, at Fresno City College actually, I had to give an entire lecture on this to my students trying to explain the terms liberal and conservative don't necessarily mean the same things and don't, don't read anything into them, uh, perhaps yeah. in that sense. And it's maybe just a, maybe it's just a semantic thing because we could kind of put libertarians in that kind of classical liberal place of, you know, not wanting government involvement in things, but not quite being conservatives either. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's complicated. And I, I think it's, it's helpful to talk about these things in particular when you, you know, are teaching in some, I don't want to call Fresno provincial, but sometimes in places where people are, uh, they've only lived in a, a kind of a small world and they have a sense of what liberal and conservative means. Um, and so when you've taught about like conservatism or stuff, British history um, to Fresno students, um, are, there, are there light bulbs that you see coming on for them as they kind of see other variations of their worldview placed before them? Absolutely. You know, I, I think one, that's what I really loved about teaching British history, because it, it's a country that everyone is sort of aware of, right? If you have any knowledge of popular culture, you're, you've seen Knights in Shining Armor, you've seen all of these, you know, historical costume dramas on Masterpiece Theater and things like that. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of Americans, and, and not just people in Fresno, but a lot of Americans don't really have a sense that Britain is a a living and breathing place too. It's not just a, you know something that shows up in the movies or in on PBS or something. Um, but it has active active politics, active political issues, very deep political divisions, obviously. Um, and so what I always try to do is, and this is actually a great exercise maybe for some of the listeners here, is sort of you know read up on on British politics and see where that you think you might fit into that. You know because these parties take a mixture of positions that that in our political. Um, arena, people might have a sense of where they fall on that spectrum. But when you throw a third party into the mix, you know, the Liberal Democrats in the British case, um, you know, suddenly that that scrambles the dynamics pr pretty effectively. So I always think that's fascinating. You can easily Google around and find, you know, where do you fall on the British political spectrum type quizzes and things of that sort, but it might be kind of a fun exercise for everyone. I mean, I, I think monarchies have disappeared across the world. And yet, they're just, you know, clinging to this. Yeah, you know, there, there's a running joke in the UK that the monarchy is still around because it brings over American tourists who spend money in London. But uh, you know, that, that might be part of it. And, and you know, the, the, we shouldn't underestimate the tourist industry. It's a big part of the British economy. So, so there's probably that sort of pomp and circumstance aspect. But, you know, having lived in the UK for a while, I think the, the royal family, especially the Queen, who we have to remember, there's virtually no one alive who hasn't lived only under Queen Elizabeth II because she's just been around and on the throne for so long at this point. So, so the Queen is really this iconic figure um, and, and I think, you know, especially in the times that we're living in now where we have the pandemic, Britain is, is going through Brexit with unknown consequences for that. The Queen herself, I think, is really seen as this sort of calming figure in that sense, right? That mm -hmm. she's never going, I mean, she will, she will leave the throne eventually, but she'll never be voted out. Um, she stayed out of politics for the most part. She really is this almost, you know, above politics type figure. She is the head of the church as well. Um, so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the monarchy when Elizabeth II sadly passes. But as long as she is alive, I think that she will retain this view of, or this perception among the British public that she's this stabilizing force. 
Um, and really, you know, the queen doesn't make that many public appearances anymore. She appears for her Christmas message, makes a few other television broadcasts throughout the year, does a few ceremonial things, which have been curtailed by COVID. Um, but, you know, if you see the queen on television, you know, it's, it's a big moment. And so I think there's, there's also just that sort of gravity of history when, when she appears. We're going to make a, a, a total uh, left turn right now and talk about eugenics, which going, well, actually, you know, what? <laughs> it's quite the segue. Turn. That's quite the segue. It's, it's not, it's not a left turn because uh, royalty has, uh, you know, been overly concerned with bloodlines for a long time. So it's actually, yeah. it's actually connected. I'm going to make that connection. Um, so eugenics is one of those words that people maybe recognize, um, Maybe they might even be able to define it, but if you ask them the history of it um, and where it comes from, and even and specifically the American history, I mean, because we have a good sense of uh, eugenics as it was, you know, used uh, with the Nazis, uh, used in certain places in Europe. But you know, when we think about it in the United States, it kind of gets a little vague, probably for obvious reasons. Um, it's not a part of uh, the history we like to highlight. We maybe remember a line or two from the great Gatsby. Um, you know, we think about maybe, maybe a, a certain book comes to mind, but beyond that, I don't feel like we really know as a culture what eugenics is and what its legacy is in the United States. So can you uh, talk a little bit about what eugenics is and then why you think that history is overlooked? Absolutely. Yeah, this was the topic of my PhD research. And it's, it's really, as you say, a topic that's been overlooked um, until recently. I would say the past five years or so, we've seen a, a major expansion of interest, which is very positive. Um, yeah, so, so eugenics actually originates in Great Britain. Uh, the founder of, of the eugenics movement is Francis Galton, who's actually the cousin of Charles Darwin. Um, and, and Galton's idea really stems from Dar the, the ideas of Darwinian evolution. Uh, when, when Darwin publishes The Origin of Species and then later on The Descent of Man, he uh, really at that point is speculating about things like um, survival of the fittest as a mechanism for, uh, for species evolving. Uh, Galton takes that idea and tries to apply it to human beings, not in the sense of trying to explain how human difference emerges, but as a way to improve the human race. And so Galton himself is an upper crust, uh, upper crust of British aristocrat who, uh, you know, obviously runs in these sort of circles with the royal family that we're talking about to some extent. Uh, but he hypothesizes that if you actually were to control mating, if you were to, con to control people getting married and having children, then you could improve, as he calls it, the, the race. So this originally, this idea, again, is an upper crust British idea. This is a very aristocratic principle. Very quickly gets transmuted into racism, as you can sort of obviously see how that, that quickly happened. Um, that largely takes place in the German context. So within a few years of Galton's initial writings on this, um, there are eugenics societies and scientific organizations that spring up in Germany, the United States, Scandinavia, um, even places like Switzerland. Um, and many of these individuals who are involved in eugenics are, are what we would say are legitimate scientists today. I mean, some of, the, some of the big names of early biology are involved in this because it is the field that's studying human heredity. And that is a field that is in its infancy in this period. So, so you have sort of the scientific aspects of, of eugenics that, um, and, and by the way, after World War II, they rename it to genetics to try to distance it from and, and more accurately describe what's going on here. So you have sort of the scientific side, much of which is, is legitimate science or, or lays the groundwork for legitimate science. But then you have the political agenda that sneaks into eugenics as well. So the United States is a very active eugenics movement that is funded uh, by some of the biggest names actually in American philanthropy. The Harriman fortune uh, is partially given to the Eugenics Record Office, which established in upstate New York. 
to try to begin tracking human heredity. Um, I give all this background because one of the most fascinating things that I sort of stumbled across is that California played a key role in eugenics movement. Um, we have to remember that California at this point was very sparsely populated, um, especially in the LA area, and it was very racially divided. Um, there was great racial resentment against Chinese immigration. The yellow laws had, had not yet come in, but this is the period in which they're being developed. This is the area of redlining um, and restrictive covenants in housing that do not allow, do not allow I mean, a lot of houses in Fresno actually have this, um, the deed states it cannot be sold to people of a certain racial or ethnic background. Um, that's deeply illegal now, but in the 1920s and 30s, this was common practice to keep neighborhoods segregated. So there are actually philanthropists in, in LA and Sacramento that begin giving money to political organizations that are trying to further the eugenic agenda in California. And part of that involves racial segregation, but it also involves, and this is where it gets very, very dark, um, forcible sterilization. And so these uh, philanthropic organizations, the most sort of Orwellian sounding of them was called the Human Betterment Foundation based out of Pasadena, um, actually begin sending out social workers to interview um, individuals that they think are candidates for sterilization. Now, we know that most of the, the people who end up being forcibly sterilized are women, um, women from um, either minority ethnic groups or from uh, poor socioeconomic backgrounds. And the criteria for sterilization is, is pretty ambiguous. Um, it, you know, I, when I was doing my research on this, I came across some of these case files and they were sterilizing women who had been sexually assaulted and become pregnant by sexual assault or women who had um, learning disabilities who were seen as sexually promiscuous and things like that. So, so sterilization happens all over California, actually. Tens of thousands largely of women are sterilized in um, state hospitals because they are allegedly not competent to manage their own sexuality effectively. Um, and really horrendously, oftentimes the administrators of these hospitals use sterilization as a criteria for release. So they go yeah. to these people who have been institutionalized and say, if you ever want to leave this place, you got to undergo this operation. They don't even necessarily tell them what it is, but they undergo this operation. And so uh, are, are these, sorry. are these, is this, is there a legal apparatus that's supporting these? Are these extra legal things? Are these things that just the law didn't cover? And so it's just, the hospital overstepping without consent and then hindsight, we see what they were doing. But in the time it was just like, oh, this is just another medical procedure. It's a great question and, and it has a, a, a scary answer because initially it is extrajudicial. Uh, essentially these doctors are just doing it. The state legislature though actually passes a bill legalizing eugenic sterilization in California. It's one of the first eugenic sterilization laws in the entire country. Um, for, for those who may be wondering what, how any of this is legal in a federal sense, the Supreme Court actually rules on eugenic sterilization in 1927 in a case known as Buck versus Bell where a woman actually sues who has been ordered to be sterilized by I think it's the state of North Carolina, um, sues for protection against sterilization. The Supreme Court strikes down her appeal and she is forcibly sterilized. So this is totally legal under state and federal law. Um, and actually some of these laws, the Supreme Court actually kind of nullifies Buck versus Bell in the 50s. Some of these state laws are still kind of on the books in some places. And so there's actually an ongoing uh, process now that I'm kind of involved in to try to identify how many people were sterilized um, and, and memorialize what actually happened. Because again, it's a topic that far too people know far too little about. Yeah, kind of, you know, that's, I recently, I don't, well, it's just because we're running out of stuff to watch on TV um, and HBO Max has such a uh, wonderful catalog. I watched for the first time in like 10 years, uh, uh, one uh, flies over the cuckoo nest and you know, the ending there 
uh, is so haunting after he receives the lobotomy. And it, sorry if I gave it away. I mean, it came out in 1975, <laughs> so you should have watched it by now. Shame on you. Um, but but just kind of that uh, this world in which we live where we assume consent now hasn't always been the case. Um, and doctors would just do things. Absolutely. Outside, yeah, actually, outside of your control. And we, yeah. but, we, but we do live in this kind of medical freedom world. And it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword in some sense, right? You know, where people want full control over everything. But we also need to take into account doctors' expertise. But, it, but yeah, what we're talking about is the opposite extreme, where doctors have the power to take someone's reproductive uh, abilities away from them. Yeah, the, the idea of informed consent, which underpins modern medical and bioethics, really only comes around after the Second World War, when, when there's actually trials of doctors who have been, been conducting horrendous experiments on concentration camp inmates, um, and, and, and many of them are convicted of, of horrendous crimes as a result of that. But yeah, in the 1930s, 40s even, there was, there was no real idea of, of conform, informed consent at all, and doctors would, would just do things. You know, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to draw any comparisons here, but when you talk about medical expertise, you know, we're in the middle of this vaccine rollout for COVID-19, you know, schools, universities, um, you know, public places, even things like public transport, this can become an issue sooner rather than later. I mean, if, if, we're, if we're going to insist that people get this vaccine, that has all sorts of interesting conversations and implications around it. Yeah. And that's, and that's you know, there, there's, a bunch of, there's a bunch of different kinds of anti-vaccine movements. Um, some may be more legitimate than others, but one is obviously the, you know, African-American communities that are wary of you know, the government enforcing certain uh, medical procedures for exactly this reason. And, you know, that's why anti-vaccine movements are so complicated um, because not only do you have, you know, people upper middle class in Orange County, but you also have, you know, ethnic communities that have been harmed by the government, you know, and it's, it's, it's complicated. But I think, you know, uh, are there good, and we'll talk more about book recommendations at the end, but are there good, uh, what were some of the kind of important books that you read on eugenics in, in the United States? You know, the, the key text on it is a book that's actually fairly old. Now. It was written in 1985, I want to say, um, by Daniel Kevlis, who's a medical historian, I want to say at Princeton, might be Yale, um, but it's called In the Name of Eugenics. Um, and it's sort of the best survey text. Um, it's a lengthy book, four or 500 pages. But um, for anyone interested, that's, that's probably a great starting point. There's been a lot published in the past few years, I'm, I'm blanking on titles, but about eugenics in California itself. And there's a lot of very exciting research going on, especially about the effect of eugenic sterilization um, on the Latino community in the 1920s and 30s, which is, is a voice that's been just completely silenced um, over the decades. So very important work going on. You know, and that's, I was, um, in a, another one of my podcasts, I'm going to be interviewing um, a historian named Susan Lee Johnson, who has done some really good work on the gold rush. And one of the things that we were talking about before the interview was, um, you know, these kind of twin legacies of California. Um, obviously, when you think the gold rush, you think people rushing to California to strike it rich, you think of Silicon Valley, you think of, you know, kind of this, you know, Hollywood dreams or whatever. But the other legacy of the gold rush, which is this kind of foundational moment for California, is ethnic strife. Um, you think of, you know, uh, all of these, uh, all of these laws that were passed, like you talked about, you know, Chinese exclusion laws, the certain laws passed against Japanese uh, folks in the 20th century. Uh, this is this is a legacy of California that uh, we don't like to talk about because we just like to focus on you know Hollywood or whatever uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalists or Facebook. 
but that other legacy is as central to California's history um, and maybe even is more prominent if you actually look at the, you know, kind of the big scope of California's history and all the major events of the last 150 years. Um, I want to transition though to talk about Hitler's friends. I always like talking about Hitler's friends. Um, it's amazing he did have friends. Uh, given what we know about him. <laughs> Maybe they weren't his friends on uh, personal friends, but uh, friends. Um, we don't, I don't think we like to talk about American friends with Hitler um, because we, you know, the Nazis are kind of, you know, just this, this thing that we can, uh, you know, make movies about shooting them um, and that's sufficient. And by making movies where we shoot them, we kind of keep them separate from us. Um, but Hitler did have friends in the United States and who were these people? Um, and let's just start with there. Who were, who were Hitler's American friends? Yeah, you know, you're making my work sound so dark here going from eugenics to, uh, to Nazi sympathizers and things, but I, I guess I did it <laughs> hey, you myself, know, this is, his, you know? this is history, right? <laughs> no, it is, it is. And, and, you know, it's another piece of history that I, I think is, is really, um, sort of underknown in this country. And yeah, I, I wrote, wrote a book on this a couple of years ago. Um, that's gotten some pretty interesting attention, but yeah, you know, I, so one thing that a lot of Americans don't realize is there was a pro-Nazi movement in this country in the 1930s. Um, how large it was is sort of the source of speculation, but there were a number of groups and sort of, uh, I would say taxonomies of individuals that were attracted to, to fascism and Nazism in this period. Um, and not just German fascism, we should say, we should say there were um, those who were admirers of Mussolini as well. Actually quite a lot of people admired Mussolini in the 1920s because he was seen as a, a progressive leader who was, who in the 1930s is defeating unemployment during the depression and things like that. But um, in terms of Hitler's friends, the first group that sort of, obviously stands out is, is the German-American community. Now, that's not at all to say that most German-Americans were disloyal. Quite the opposite was true. Um, my own family was German-American. None of them were in any of these groups. So, so we're talking about a small number of people here. But there was an organization that was founded in, in the upper Midwest, largely, um, called the German-American Bund, which was based out of New York City. And this was an organization that in the 1930s was actually founded by some of the original Nazi party members from Germany that had migrated to the United States um, when Hitler was in prison following the Beer Hall push. So, so these are pretty hardcore Nazis. They formed this organization that is supposedly a German-American um, ethnic organization. So they drink beer and sing German songs and teach their kids German and things like that. This seemed pretty innocuous. The other side of that, though, is that it's pretty clearly a front for National Socialist uh, penetration of the United States. So in addition to all these wonderful summer camp activities, and there are actually summer camps for kids that they put on, which are pretty disturbing, um, they're training people how to use weapons. They have an armed paramilitary branch. They send their kids to these summer camps where they're learning how to salute the Fuhrer and, and march in formation and wear uniforms and things like that. So the German-American Bund is, is the largest of these groups, and they have hundreds of thousands of members across the country, actually. It's not a small organization. Um, in California history, they actually are, are pretty, pretty strong in downtown Los Angeles at one point, to the point that there's um, German-American Bund members roaming the streets, uh, causing trouble for the local police uh, in the 1930s. So, so this is a pretty big organization. Um, and then you have sort of adjacent organizations. So, so the thing that I like to remind audiences about, you know, because I think it's really important, is that the United States is a, is a pretty anti-Semitic country in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. This is something that we don't often want to remember. But I cite some polling in the book suggesting that, that about a third of Americans um, kind of just wanted Jews to leave the United States. 
um, unclear on how they wanted to achieve that, but sort of this idea that, that they just wanted these folks to leave. And when you talk about and look at the polling surrounding refugees, so these would be Jews fleeing Nazi persecution in Europe, the polling is overwhelming that Americans don't want them allowed in. And so and this that, is a that's not, sorry to interrupt, but that's not the narrative we like to tell. We like to tell the narrative like Einstein coming to the United States and like yeah. Jews coming here, but then there was also this simultaneous like <laughs> coming in and then kicking out. Yeah, even after the war, that's the case, actually. I mean, even after the, the events of the Holocaust are revealed, there's a great amount of skepticism about allowing Holocaust survivors into the U.S. because there's a, a fear. Well, there, there's a couple of different fears, right? I mean, there's there's a fear of, of communism and socialism, that some of these people might be political refugees as well as, as um, refugees because of their religion. Um, and then there's a fear of, of just immigration. This is a, a period where Americans are very skeptical of immigration. There's actually um, immigration quotas in this period that allow the Roosevelt administration to simply slam the door shut on allowing refugees from Poland, for instance. And so there's this very, very dark period in American history where the US, where, where the American people, um, there, there are these deeply anti-Semitic voices. I mean, very famous examples of Father Charles Coughlin, perhaps the most listened to radio personality of all time, an audience perhaps as large as 30 or 45 million Americans on a weekly basis, as this, this priest actually spews anti-Semitic bile and praises the Nazis. Um, and and so, so anti-Semitism is, is just really, really commonplace in the United States, deep-seated, but it's also um, casually expressed in a way that is, that is you know, really uncomfortable to even read um, you know, when you look at the documents today. Um, so, so that's group number two. I mean, you, you have a lot of Americans that just sort of harbor anti-Semitic views. Um, and then you actually have, have an actual German intelligence apparatus in the U.S. Um, and this is something that I, I did quite a bit of research on. But Germany, Nazi Germany does have spies. They do have agents. They actually have a, a propaganda operation on Capitol Hill itself, where you have a German agent who's disseminating Nazi propaganda to, to U.S. senators and representatives who are using it in their speeches on the floor of the House and Senate. So why do you, so the, why do you think there isn't as much publicity about German operatives, but you know we have lots of. I mean, we love to talk about Soviet Cold War spies, uh, but we don't talk about. Is it? I mean, it's maybe just that there's maybe a shorter time frame here, or why? Why do you speculate we don't talk about those kind that kind of espionage as much? It's a great question. I mean, I think part of it is that. Um, you know, it was such a short period of time. I mean, the Nazis are, are completely defeated in 1945, obviously. Uh, there's also the sort of uncomfortable reality that a lot of these people end up being allowed in the U.S. after the war. So, so after the war, as the Third Reich is collapsing, um, you know, OSS, which is the precursor of the CIA, actually starts recruiting some of these Nazi agents as, as American agents. And so I actually found some evidence that some of the individuals who were running intelligence ops um, in Washington, D.C., prior to the war, end up recruited as CIA operatives to, to penetrate Eastern Germany after the Interesting. war. So they're not um, all in Argentina. Uh, some of them end up in Argentina. I mean, you know, be, being a Nazi spy doesn't really pay in this period, especially, you know, there's a lot of Americans that get involved in this who are either paid off by the Nazi, by Nazi agents or get involved for romantic reasons. You know, the classic stories you read in spy novels. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them end up in prison. But it's trickier when you're dealing with non-Americans, obviously. I mean, oftentimes, as happened during the Cold War, when they, when they uncover these people, they, they send them back actually, um, because a lot of them have diplomatic cover as well. So, you know, one, one amazing fact, I mean, there, there's so much fascinating about the Second World War, but there were actually still diplomatic exchanges during World War II. So we actually sent ships across the Atlantic carrying German diplomats and returned them to the Nazis even after the U.S. entered the war after Pearl Harbor. Just absolutely bizarre. 
you know, let's talk about isolationism for a minute. Um, you know, I, I, I think we have, we have a short memory um, and most of the history of the United States, we've been a pretty isolationist uh, country. Um, and it's only, you know, when we kind of, well, I mean, I won't say that because we, you know, we have these things, the Monroe Doctrine, we've got, you know, kind of interventions in North and South America. But when it comes to Europe, you know, I mean, we, even, World War One, it was a, it was almost impossible to get us in, into World War One. Um, and then World War Two, you know, I don't want to say accidentally, but, you know, pulled in by events. Um, so I guess my question is, and it's kind of connected to this, um, why, why do you think it's important uh, to remember uh, the fact that the United States was pretty isolationist for large parts of its history? Well, I think that's absolutely true up until, I would say, even the end of World War II, maybe even beyond that. But yeah, you know, isolationism is a, a strong American tradition. I mean, if you look at George Washington's farewell yeah. address when he leaves the presidency, right, he says, avoid foreign entanglements. Don't, don't, don't even make alliances with people necessarily, because that's how you get yourself into trouble, um, paraphrasing, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think for, for much of history, um, isolationism has been the, the default, because, you know, think about geography. As I, as I tell my students, you know, the geography here tells the story. You got two huge oceans on either side of you. Um, mm -hmm. Up until the middle half of the 20th century, the odds of getting invaded were pretty low. Um, you've got Canada and Mexico, right, which are your only adjoining countries. Um, and, and we fought wars with both of them, right? I mean, we, we often forget this, that we fought the War of 1812 against the British and the Canadians. We actually mm -hmm. invaded Canada. Um, we were fighting wars with Mexico or border skirmishes with Mexico up until just about World War I. So, mm -hmm. I mean, so North America has not been terribly... Um, Pacific over the course of its history. But, you know, that's a manageable risk. You, you know, probably Canada and Mexico aren't going to, you know, burn down Washington, D.C. or something like that. So you can be pretty safe if you're an American for much of history sitting behind your, your oceans and, and in fact, sitting behind your economic tariff walls, you know, staying disengaged from the world and, and doing just fine. Um, the other thing we have to remember is, of course, you know, the civil wars right in the middle of that. So there are bigger, big problems here, too. But I think, you know, I, I argue very strenuously in, in some of my writings that I don't, I just don't think isolationism is a viable foreign policy in the modern world. I mean, first of all, the world is just too interconnected. And secondly, the technology is, is essentially makes the United States incredibly vulnerable, um, you know, almost uniquely vulnerable in some ways, because unless you are engaging um, with allies around the world in a, to establish collective security, um, you're not going to have any security, right? I mean, in the era of aircraft carriers, <laughs> you can you can get your cities bombed from the ocean, right? In the era of submarines, you can have um, you know nuclear weapons sitting off your coast. Um, and so, I think what you see after 1945 is this realization that it's collective security rather than geographic security that's that's really the United States' future in that sense. And and I I fully realize, you know, I think it's it's fascinating that this discussion has come up in recent recent history. Um, and there's been some accusations that there are politicians out there today that, that are isolationists or, or neo-isolationists. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, but I think it's, it's an important discussion for us to have um, as a country, certainly. Yeah, I don't think, you know, it's, it's hard to be isolationist in a globally capitalist world that we live in, um, yeah. near about impossible. Um, if we we're isolationists, you know, I truly, I would lose my iPhone and my you know, many of the things that uh, keep me alive every day. Um, 
and it, it's it's just not realistic. But I, I I brought it up because I think it ties in to a lot of these things around immigration, around reticence to get into a conflict or a war. You know, you know, I I wonder, you know, if 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 Japan hadn't attacked Pearl Harbor, what exactly entrance into World War II would have looked like um, exactly. Um, and I think all of these things tie back to isolationism in some way or another, which is our, you know, we need to stay apart from other people and other things uh, and keep our country pure in some sense. So I think it's all kind of wrapped up. Would you agree? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that oftentimes these these spurts of isolationism come after what are seen as military defeats for the United States. So one thing that a lot of people don't know is that World War One was actually seen as a total disaster by a lot of Americans. The majority of Americans actually thought it should we shouldn't have gotten in to World right. War One even after we were on the winning side. And then of course Wilson has dealt this horrendous blow when he fails to pass the Treaty of Versailles and join the League of Nations. So. That, I think, feeds directly into the isolationist sentiments of the 1930s, this view of why are we going to get sucked into another war. Right. You see a little bit of the same thing in the post-Vietnam era, although Vietnam is a very different type of conflict, goes on much longer, still seen as a military setback for the United States, certainly not a victory. And you see a lot of skepticism towards military involvement that lasts right up until the first Gulf War, which is you know, seen as a great American victory. Then we have the second Gulf War, seen as much less of a victory, much more like Vietnam in a lot of people's minds. Um, and now I think we have the same discussion sort of happening again of, you know, can, which is, I think, an interesting twofold discussion, whether we're aware of it or not. It's, it's not just a discussion of should the U.S. be involved around the world? I think a lot of Americans would say it should. It's the question of can we do it competently and successfully? And I think that's kind of the implicit present uh, premise that a lot of this discussion involves that I think we actually need to bring more to the fore because the U.S. is actually very competent at doing things around the world. It doesn't always appear that way, but, but I think we have to keep in mind that that's kind of what's being discussed. Yeah, I forget who said it, um, but someone smart said, uh, it's easy to make war, hard to make peace. Um, and I think that's true um, and is a perfect, you know, uh, encapsulation of, uh, the war in Iraq and, and the problems with it um, beyond just the obvious of, you know, where were those WMDs? Um, so uh, let's... <laughs> never found uh, them, never found them. <laughs> never found them. Uh, we found the hole where he's hiding, but that's it. Um, so we're going to transition to a section that I call overrated versus underrated. Um, and basically I'll toss out a few different topics. You can tell me overrated or underrated and why. Uh, some of them are more uh, kind of light than others. Uh, the first one we'll start with is a very heavy book. Um, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich is often considered the book about learning about Nazis. Is that book overrated or underrated? You know, it's overrated because it, but only because it's been so widely, um, what's the term I want to use? It's been so venerated for so long that it's seen as this authoritative source. And while um, Shire, you know, was there, he was a reporter and, and interviewed a lot of these folks, it is not as authoritative as some of the more recent scholarship. So I have to go with overrated on that one. And it was written in 1960 something. So it's, you know, it's, it's at this point, we're coming on 60 years old. Um, and the, you know, history sometimes is books. Uh, some of the best history books are oftentimes some of the most recent history books, just because of the availability of sourcing. Um, you know, I mean, certain books, historical writing is good as a primary source. Uh, but at a certain point, if you really want to understand the history, uh, the most recent books tend to be the best. 
Um, and that's maybe an overgeneralization, but in my mind, that's how I look at it. I'll, I'll throw in quickly. I actually use Shira as a primary source because he was, he was a primary source, right? I've never, I've never sourced that book as a secondary source, but I have as a primary source, which is interesting. That's great. Well, um, <laughs> next one, and this is just how I ordered it. Um, Chelsea buns. <laughs> Um, well, I'm gluten-free, so I guess I wouldn't be a good, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be a good uh, judge on that one. I'll leave that to the audience. Yeah. So that was one I asked because of your uh, graduate education. I know that uh, lots, lots of Chelsea buns are consumed uh, over there. Um, all right. Number three, um, the great Gatsby. Ooh, overrated or underrated. And, and the reason I'm asking is it just entered the public domain this year. Um, uh, yes, it did. Mm -hmm. Yes, it did. Um, I think it's actually underrated. You know, that's one of those books that I think everyone sort of reads in high school and they sort of, you know, hopefully think it's a good book, but reread that thing every five years and you'll see something different in it. I mean, I actually do this. I do this with Hemingway as well, who's one of my favorite writers, but I think it's one of those books that ages with you. Um, if that makes sense, you know, as you get older and have experiences, you see more and more in that book. And that's really the genius of Fitzgerald. I, I will say, you know, some of Fitzgerald's other books are great too. Um, if you're interested in, in sort of getting off the beaten path, read, read anything that guy wrote and you'll, you'll be in for a treat. Yeah. I mean, it's some of these books that are given to, to children are so strange. And I, you know, I, <laughs> it's, I true. it's weird to say, but I often, I, I, I think the kids, not for any religious reasons, but you know, starting with like reading, having them understand the Bible and the Odyssey and the Iliad maybe are more important at a younger age. And some of these books with, you know, because The Great Gatsby, the themes in it are are, are just, you're not going to, they're not for you at 14. They just aren't. Um, and maybe, maybe there is something that you would get out of it, but I question its value. Um, maybe, maybe I'm just too skeptical of of teenagers ability. I mean, they need to read Sylvia Plath or something dramatic or, <laughs> or, or Jack Kerouac or something, you know, something that kind of fits, fits where they are. I don't yeah, know. Catcher in the Rye or something like that. There you go. Exactly. All right. Uh, this one is, uh, this one is one I do every, for every one of these uh, segments, uh, me and Ed's pizza. Oh, totally underrated. I mean, that is, that is the best pizza I've had anywhere. It really is. I mean, that, that is a true Fresno tradition. You know, and I've, I've asked lots of different people, because I, I talk about it almost every show because it's, it was a journey for me um, because I liked the traditional kind of New York slice, the bigger slice, uh, a bit thinner, um, maybe, maybe a tad less greasy. Um, and then obviously minus the cornmeal element. Um, but what, what makes me and Ed's pizza underrated for you? Well, they have gluten-free crust for one. Um, but I think they, they I, I don't know. It's, it's just, they do a nice job. I, I get you on the grease thing though. I usually end up dabbing a little off the top. Yeah, it, it can get that way. All right. Um, the next one is kind of, a, uh, I'm giving one piece of a larger piece that we can talk about. Um, Inglorious Bastards. I actually have enough to plead ignorance on this one. I have not seen it. Okay. Well, the, let me lead that to uh, World War uh, II movies. Are there certain uh, depictions of Nazis in film that you like more than others? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think. Let me ask. The, let me ask this one. Do you think the the film, the HBO film series Band of Brothers, is overrated or underrated? You know, I think it's underrated because I think that it's it's that is a a piece of cinematic achievement. I would say that is going to be more and more appreciated once the World War II generation is fully gone. 
which it nearly is now, because I think that's one of the, the most accurate portrayals of what it was actually like. I think it's difficult to encapsulate anything involving World War II in, one, in two hours, right? And I think that's what Band of Brothers did very well, was told the story in a narrative fashion over a long enough period that you could see the character development, you could see the actual experience, get a feel of the experience in that sense. Um, you know, another great film, you know, that I think does capture the World War II experience is, is Fury, which was the Brad Pitt film from a few years ago about um, a tank commander, uh, I think during the, the push after Normandy, as I recall. Mm -hmm. um, disturbing film in a lot of ways but you know i think i think that's the kind of cinema we're going to start seeing more and more you know if you, if you track world war ii movies over time initially you, you had the john wayne shoot em ups right then you had sort of the saving private ryan era which is a great film in its own right for the time time and place that it was released um and, and now i think we're getting into really the psychology of the war as as that generation you know very sadly passes away so so i think you know in a lot of senses if, if anyone out there listening is a fan of world war ii cinema i think we're about to enter a golden age of it actually yeah so i, I brought up inglorious bastards because it was uh, kind of a part of um what's his name uh tarantino's uh kind of revenge uh histories where you know he flips history on his head and gets to take revenge against the people group um and so most recently i don't know if you watched this one but he uh, his most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, was about Man the Manson murders, or murder, murders. Um, and spoiler alert, here it comes. Uh, it's, you know, you think that it's going to be the historical murder by the end of the film, and instead Brad Pitt and Leo just smoke these hippies <laughs> with like flamethrowers and stuff. Um, uh, but he builds up your tension um, that you think, you know, it's, you're going to watch what happened on that fateful uh, night uh, in the Hollywood Hills. So it's interesting, this, but this dynamic, though, of like wanting to wish that history played out differently. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I was getting at with that, um, to get your reaction. But uh, let's transition to the next one. Um, overrated or underrated? Studying at very old universities. Is that overrated or underrated? I think appropriately rated, if I can go for that one. I mean, you know, go, go, so I went to grad school at the University of St. Andrews, which is the oldest university in Scotland. I got to go to Cambridge for my PhD, which is the second oldest university in um, in England after a place you may have heard of called Oxford. I don't know. We don't talk about them too much. But right. yeah, I think, um, you know, there's something really special about an old university. And I, you know, I teach at a, a new university, uh, which is a great experience too. But there's something really amazing about walking through corridors that, you know, hundreds of years of, of people who become diplomats and prime ministers and, uh, and also, you know, every profession you can imagine, many of which don't even exist anymore, um, that they've, they've walked through those halls as well. Um, the other great thing about old universities, is they tend to have very good pubs. So, uh, you know, that, that was another exciting uh, facet of my grad school experience. Yeah, there's, um, you know, I have attended only newer universities in California. And one of the ones that I went to, the first one I went to, San Francisco State, where I did my undergrad, uh, was built in uh, this wonderful brutalist style of yes. just these uh, concrete monoliths and just <laughs> soul-sucking monstrosities all across campus. And I hated it at first. Um, but then I started reading about brutalism my senior year of college and, and, and wish I had appreciated it <laughs> during my time. Uh, and I know that name sounds terrible, brutalist, as a, an aesthetic style, but um, there's, something, there's something you can appreciate about uh, cement. 
I actually kind of like that campus. You know, I've been, I've been to San Francisco State a few times. I gave a talk there a couple of years ago. It, it kind of, you know, it kind of grows on you, actually. Yes, and, and they have updated. So as you walk back towards the back of campus, things, you know, they're newer the closer you get to the lake. Um, but the front of the campus is where you really get that stark brutalism, which uh, I, I need to go back. It's been a long time. All right, uh, two more. Um, uh, Wagner's influence on Hitler, overrated or underrated? I think probably overrated, actually. I mean, so so the Nazis and Hitler himself are obsessed with Wagner, um, and Wagner was was deeply anti-Semitic. I mean, that's that's certainly no secret. I mean, he he writes essays about how how terrible Jewish composers are and things like that. So so not a very charming guy. Um, I think it's more that the Nazis appropriate Wagner for their purposes rather than actually um, influencing. And we have to keep in mind that, that part of sort of for lack of a better term, the Nazi shtick, is that they're the preservers of German culture, right? And what's more German culture than, than Wagner, especially in, in the first part of the 20th century? So, so I think it's a case of, of appropriation of Wagner versus a, a real influence. I mean, it, it's, it's tough, to, tough to see how a, a composer um, could, could really inspire the kind of atrocities uh, that the Third Reich ended up committing. I think it's, it's more, of a, uh, more of a sort of appropriation. Do you also think that uh, Nietzsche's influence on uh, the Nazis is equally overrated. No, I think I think that's more. I mean, maybe maybe overrated by some scholars, but but Nietzsche Nietzsche's philosophy certainly does play in uh, very essentially, I think, to Nazism. And and Nietzsche's sister, of course, who is the surviving inheritor of his uh, of his estate and his writings, um, actually meets Hitler personally um, and is a great admirer of him. And that's part of the reason why actually Nietzsche is so closely associated with the Nazis because she herself is a, is a, I can't remember if she's actually a party member, but certainly highly interested and sympathetic to Nazism. And she positions her, her deceased brother's work in that tradition. So I think there is an actual real influence there. Um, and, and we know that you know, Hitler, if he's not reading Nietzsche, is certainly espousing Nietzschean ideas at various points. So I think, I think that is certainly real. Yeah, and I don't, I, I'm getting my, my timelines mixed up, but I know that Nietzsche really liked himself some opera. So maybe there's <laughs> just this giant circle of, uh, of influence. That's the way things go. All right. Last one um, on overrated versus underrated. And that is uh, the pamphlet reflections on the revolution in France. Oh, uh, I mean, can't tell if it's overrated. I mean, probably underrated actually. I mean, that's one of those, those texts. In its that... significance, maybe in its significance. Oh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think appropriately rated. I mean, it, a, clearly a key text in in conservative tradition. I mean, Edmund Burke is really a great thinker. Um, if anyone out there hasn't read it, I mean, I, I highly recommend it. It is a really thought-provoking text, actually. I mean, make, making the argument that you know what what does it mean to be part of the state? What is the essence of a state in terms of its traditions, its laws, and, and what are the objectives? What what are the what are the ideals that a state should? Um, should, should really be striving towards. Um, and it's a, it's a pamphlet that, you know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people would disagree with a lot of it, but you know, if you're disagreeing with Edmund Burke, you're, you're in good company. Yeah. Do you think there's, um, yeah, I know that there, there's, there's plenty of thoughtful conservative writers. Um, but do you, do you feel like there's less of them now, uh, than there has been? I mean, you know, we think about the William F. Buckley's and the different, uh, thoughtful conservatives and, you know, kind of the national review world. Um, I, I personally think, you know, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a conservative, but I personally think that when there's strong voices on all sides, that that's the, the best outcome. Do you think there's uh, less of them now? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I actually read National Review pretty regularly. I mean, I want to see what they're saying. I read liberal publications as well because I want to see what they're saying. I, I want to surround myself with, with a variety of opinions, right, as I think we all should. Um, I don't think there's fewer necessarily. I think that they've recently been kind of drowned out um, by a lot of the things that are going on on social media. You know, I think it's, it's difficult for for anyone really to express opinions on social media without getting getting piled on to some extent these days. So I think that's probably driven out a lot of the uh, more thoughtful commentators. But, you know, I, I've been reading up actually quite recently on Buckley, um, and I'm, I'm hoping it, hopefully going to do some, some publishing on him soon. But, you know, if you look at what Buckley's writing, I mean, this, this guy's a serious intellect, right? I mean, he's writing essays that are thousands of, of words long. I mean, stuff that would be very, I think, would would land differently today. Let's let's to put it gently, um, but but he's equally virulent. I mean, you can imagine Buckley being on Twitter and being very effective. Uh, we have to remember that his first book is a denunciation of his own alma mater, Yale University, for supposedly violating the charter by eliminating religion. So I mean, this is a this is a pretty polemic text that gets him in uh, in a lot of trouble with Yale, uh, but also gets him the attention that leads him to launch the National Review. So so I, I don't think there's necessarily fewer fewer thoughtful voices out there, but I think it's it's impinging upon actually all of us to seek them out and and to listen to them, whether we agree with them or disagree with them. Yeah, and I think you know that's one of the challenges is um, is is this whole echo chamber thing that's happening, uh, where you. You know, you don't want you don't want to listen to someone that it, ideas are threatening. I mean, I don't. I definitely am not one to spend a lot of time on the, you know, decrying cancel culture. Um, <laughs> that's not. It's not on my agenda. I mean, there's. I was happy. You know, I mean, there's many individuals I would happily cancel. Um, <laughs> I, I I call it consequences culture. Um, but yeah. You know, I think the the obvious downside to that is that. You know, if your if your if your solution is to shut someone up because they have a different opinion, then you have a problem. But that's neither here nor there. Let's let's talk about uh, COVID uh, for a second because uh, you wrote a book about the twenties, and the twenties also had a uh, predecessor pandemic um, that preceded them. You like that alliteration? Um, and uh, there's been people speculating that we're about to enter our own roaring twenties following COVID. Uh, given all of the things that are happening with technology, right? Um, do you do you see another roaring twenties around the corner? I think it's very possible. You know, I, I think I, I think about this question in a couple of different ways. I think about it from the social perspective and the economic perspective. And and social, I think, is the easier of the two. I mean, you know, I deal with a lot of young people, right? And and those young students who, when we come out of this thing, let's assume it's at the end of 2021. Fingers crossed. Um, there's going to be students that haven't lived a college lifestyle. Right, they've been taking classes online for for two years. Um, if they're freshmen, they've they've took their senior year and freshman year of college online. There's people who will have taken half their college experience online only. So I think there's going to be a lot of of demand for for entertainment, for fun, um, for for socializing, um, assuming it can be done safely. So I think in that sense, you know, we we will likely see something somewhat similar to to what happened in the 1920s when you have this period of, of sexual liberation, the first real sexual revolution. You have um, new technology like the automobile, which gets into more people's hands really than ever before. You have um, even you know the beginnings of of air travel in the 19 later 1920s. So. So really, you, you have this convergence of, of an appetite for excitement and the technology that can actually deliver it. But I think also the economics of this are important. And I've been thinking about this actually a lot lately. But I think we're, we're entering a world where 
workers and employees are going to have a great deal more freedom than they've probably ever had before. And I say that because of companies like Spotify, actually, which, which you may have seen last week announced that they're going to allow their employees to live anywhere in the world they want to and continue to pay them the same salaries. They'll be working from home forever. So I think you're going to see more and more companies, especially in the, in the technology space, but I suspect others as well, that are going to see that as a competitive advantage and say, look, if we don't allow our employees to work from home, they're not going to be our employees anymore. <laughs> they're going to jump ship. Um, and, and we don't really know what that's going to look like, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's stories of people abandoning the Bay Area and moving places like, like Fresno or Clovis or places like Montana for that matter, right? Because your money goes a lot further. It's a better lifestyle, especially if you have a family. Um, so I think that's really, in my mind, the, the bigger of the two issues is how does the economy, how does, how does the working world really reorient itself? And I think, you know, as we come out of this thing, hopefully, again, fingers crossed, we do it cleanly at the end of this year, if not sooner, um, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people who are, who are motivated, who are self-starters, who can manage their time effectively, who um, can work efficiently. Um, it could be almost endless opportunities. I mean, you could take jobs anywhere potentially in the country or even the world without ever leaving your house. So I think that's something really important. And this is something I'm telling my students now is, you know, imagine your place in that world of the future. You know, where do you want to live when you can live anywhere? What kind of jobs do you want to have that allow you to, to have that kind of flexibility? Um, I think that's where we have a really interesting possibility of having a truly roaring 20s where people have more freedom um, than ever before and, and really almost endless opportunities if they play their cards right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar in a lot of ways to the automobile, right? Because the automobile allowed you to live in the suburbs, but work in the city. Um, and so this kind of flexibility with travel. And I, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are positive. Um, what about some of the negative aspects of the Roaring Twenties? Do, do you see those on the frontier as well? Well, the biggest negative aspect of the 20s was the 1930s, right? Where, you know, we have this ma massive buildup in the stock market. And you're, you're seeing some evidence of this now where, you know, b bored people are sitting on trading apps and driving up the price of, uh, of various stocks, uh, you know, several hundred fold potentially. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a, there's a, a real, <laughs> I think, growing fear that, you know, this, this irrational exuberance or this um, desire for fun and excitement is translating into some sort of economic bubble that, that could burst. Um, you know, we also, and, and this is a very important thing, especially in Fresno, we have to remember that not everyone's going to benefit equally from anything that happens, right? And so we have to ensure that this is a, a broad-based recovery that includes everyone. It's not just, you know, what I just described is going to be a great boon for people with high levels of education who have, mm -hmm. you know, had opportunities that have, the system has privileged them in many ways. And our job, I think, is to make sure that, that that's a more equally distributed set of benefits, right? That was the big problem in the 20s, actually, was that inequality grew as a result of it. So, so that, I think, especially in a, in a city like Fresno, is really an essential part of this, making sure this is a broad-based recovery that includes everyone. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's end by talking about books. Um, and we can talk about this in two different layers. Uh, maybe we'll start with the Nazis. You know, I think one of the most important things that I did beyond reading books to understand the Nazis is I took a trip to Bavaria and Austria. I feel like you can understand the Nazis a lot better there. It, it, it is so strange. You know, I said this as we were uh, hiking the, what was it called? Zugspitz, uh, which is the tallest mountain in Germany. Um, and I, and as we were looking down over this kind of idyllic Bavarian countryside, I was like, why, why, why would you A, want to leave and go to war and B, go to Poland? <laughs> Why would you want to go to Poland when this is when this is outside? But obviously that's a joke. Um, so what are what are some what are some books? Um, if you 
you know, because we have now, what is it? 80 years, um, really, since the Nazis were around. So there's, and, and, and when you go to the library and you try to find books on Nazis, it's, it's so complicated because there's this enormous bibliography now that you almost need an expert to guide you through in order to not waste your time. Um, and these books also tend to be massive. They're just massive. And it, it just becomes challenging to wade through. So what are, what are some, you know, assume that the person listening has kind of the cursory understanding of Nazis that most of us do um, from either public education or TV. Um, what, are some, what are some good places to uh, start? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's just so much to talk about in in the Third Reich and and just that period generally that these books do tend to be massive and, and there's a ton of them. Um, I'll, I'll put in a plug here. I mean, I think a great starting point would be my my former PhD supervisor's uh, trilogy on the Third Reich, or Richard J. Evans. The first volume of that, I believe, is called The Coming of the Third Reich, um, and he traces the story really effectively. I mean, Evans is, is a great writer. I, I profited a lot from his um, from his help, obviously, and, and we've kept in touch since. But he really summarizes it pretty well, and he also uh, I think this is actually a subtle but effective thing. He translates all of the German terms into English. <laughs> you know, often in these books, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the titles that are you know kept in the original right. German. It, it's kind of a barrier to entry for a lot of readers. He actually even even changes the term Führer uh, to leader. So, I mean, yes. that, that was a very controversial decision. But yeah, it's kind of a way of mysticizing Nazism as well, you know, by not translating certain words. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it adds a sense of, of it being a purely foreign phenomenon, right? Or something that's, that's unique to Germany, which, which it wasn't, right? I mean, fascism was a, was a global movement of that period. So yeah, I'd recommend the, the Third Reich Trilogy by Richard J. Evans. Um, for, for those interested in, in the American side of this, I mean, I, I wrote my book a couple of uh, years ago. There's also a book by James Q. Whitman, who's actually a legal scholar. I want to say out of Princeton, wrote a book called Hitler's American Model. Um, which talks about actually eugenics laws and and Jim Crow laws in the South and their influence on the Nazis. This is another another aspect that people don't really know about, but the, but the Nazis actually did study um, Jim Crow laws in the South and and took elements of them um, and included them in the Nuremberg laws, which were the the anti-Semitic laws that they passed soon after taking power. Um, interestingly, various aspects of Jim Crow they rejected as too extreme for the Third Reich. Um, and, and too restrictive. So, so the, the Whitman book is, is a great primer on that. Wow. I, I forgot to ask this earlier when we were talking about um, film. Um, have you watched The Man in High Castle? I have, yeah. Okay. No, that is, is a very take? interesting series. Yeah. What is your take on that? Well, it got a little weird for me in the end. I, I have to be honest, I, I didn't quite finish it when it got into the final season. There was a lot of time travel stuff or whatever. But right, right. yeah, um, you know, I thought it was the first couple seasons were really intriguing. And, and, you know, we've seen there was also the HBO um, version of The Plot Against America that came out a couple of months ago now, which, which hypothesizes that Charles Lindbergh, who I write about quite a lot, becomes president and cuts an alliance with, with Adolf Hitler in 1940, which, you know, fortunately was fiction, but, but uh, you know. I mean, he was a popular, he was a very popular guy. I mean, it, I, I don't know if he's as popular as FDR, but he was popular. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the premise of Man in the High Castle, I mean, no spoiler alert here, is that FDR actually gets assassinated. I think it's in 1934, and there, there was an assassination attempt on him. Um, but the premise of that is that he's assassinated, and therefore the U.S. can't fight the war, and therefore the Nazis get the atomic bomb first, bomb D.C., and end up taking over the country and splitting it with the Japanese. But yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of this interest in, in these types of counterfactual histories right now. And I think it's... Um, I think it's positive, actually. I think it, it reminds us of just how lucky we were 
to, to win the Second World War, first of all, and just really how evil these, these ideologies were. I mean, the only thing that feels a stretch, I mean, a lot of it is a stretch. I don't want to say. I'd say the time the main, travel parts are a stretch. Yeah. The main <laughs> thing that feels a stretch or the, the largest stretch is, um, it, I mean, the Atlantic Ocean. You know, I mean, I think, I think that and then the size and scope of the United States. I just think, you know, if we've learned anything from the war in Iraq, that it's really hard to manage, a, <laughs> manage, manage some territory that you're controlling from far away. Um, I just can't imagine, you know, uh, the country of Germany, which is a large, large in European size, relatively, but um, I just can't imagine them controlling the eastern half of the United States. Which would you prefer, Plot Against America or the Man in High Castle? Ooh, you're making me choose now. Um, well, if, you, I th- if, if someone hasn't seen them and they want to watch one to start. Yeah, yeah, I think I think they're different. I mean, I think Man in the High Castle is, you know, if, if you want to see a dystopian vision of Nazi-occupied America, that's the one to see. Um, you know, I, I think Plot Against America is more about America itself, right? So it's about, you know, how fascism could take root in the United States slowly um, and, and without, you know, a lot of folks noticing and then, then come to fruition. The ending of Plot Against America is kind of weird too, to be honest, though. So I don't know what happens in these series. I, I guess when you're you doing- those? How do you end those? I mean, it doesn't- I, 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 it's, it's kind of like a thought experiment that's been made a TV show and it's, you know, thought experiments just end quickly. Well, I think you also have to have kind of a happy ending. You can't just let the Nazis take over America and nothing happened there. Right. I mean, it's kind of, kind of a tough series to end, I think for both of them. Um, Let's uh, beyond books on Nazis. Do you have any other books to recommend on any of the topics we talked about or just things that you're interested in reading these days? You know, since the pandemic started, I think like a lot of folks, I've been trying to knock a bunch of books off my bucket list. So I, I dove into the, the long Russian novels. I read Dostoyevsky. I read Tolstoy. Um, I read some more modern stuff as well. I'm currently going through the, the John Le Carre novels. So the, the Smiley uh, and Carla series, that, that's good reading. But I would say, and, and this is absolutely genuine. This is not just me trying to pretend that I'm, you know, better read than I am. But War and Peace is really a good book. I mean, it's one of those books that, that it, it is a slog to get through at points and there are entire parts that you could probably skip, not miss much. Um, but, you know, the beginning of that and the end of it are, are really good. So I'd really recommend re- reading, in fact, the unabridged version of it. Um, because, I mean, Tolstoy was just, just really a genius who I think captured the human condition in a way that a lot of other authors didn't. So that's my big book endorsement. If you're looking to, to read 1,200 pages or so before, uh, you know, lockdown ends. Yeah, that's quite a recommendation. I, you know, I mean, that's, that's the way with a lot of these old books. I mean, if you, if you wade into Moby Dick, um, you, you will get some chapters about uh, whales, you know, not purely action based chapters where there's harpoons and stuff, but more uh, 19th century science, which maybe is interesting to you if you're really that bored. Uh, But for most of us, (laughs) Uh, it's not, um, but you have to, you have to keep reading, you know, you really do. And I think that's one of the hardest things with getting people to read classics, you know, is you have those kind of like those troughs in those books. So yeah. like I, I read Middlemarch um, last spring and there are points where I was like, I don't care. I just, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, that's right. and it's, it, it happens to all of us when we're reading these, these tomes, but I think, uh, that that separates the wheat from the chaff, if you will. Those those of us that can push through those, I forget what the name name of science of whales is, but I don't ever want to read something about the science of whales ever again. After, but it but those boring chapters um, 
when you when you contrast them with the heights that you get with Melville or something, it's 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 worth it's worth the time. And I'm sure it's true with Tolstoy. I've never actually read War and Peace. It's one of those books that's like, well, retirement will be there one day. <laughs> and you know, it's just so hard. I I don't know if you have this uh, problem, but I have the book lust problem where there's so many good things to read. Um, it's like the person that's on a dating app and swipes. Uh, is it right? Right. I haven't, you know, I was married before the existence of these things where you swipe a certain way to, to like somebody. Like I have that problem with books where I just, I, my book, my books pile and pile and pile. And then I'm, I'm just, it's hard to jump into war and peace because I'm committing to something. Yeah. I'm committing yeah. to three months of just hanging out with one girl, with hanging out with one Tolstoy, <laughs> you know, and I just want to, I want to play the field with so many books all the time. And it's just, it's a problem. So anyway, uh, let's, let's finish by talking about uh, what you have in the works. Uh, what, what book projects, articles, what are, what's going on in your world and where can people find your stuff? Yeah, I've got a couple of interesting things. I'm actually working, I've sort of pivoted away from American Nazis and I'm now I'm sort of the Japanese side of things. So I've got an article coming out about um, Japanese spies on the West Coast actually next few months, uh, which is going to be in an academic journal, but hoping to translate that into something a little more um, popular. Um, and by the way, I should mention I have a website, bradleywhart.com, where folks can find out about my, my books and uh, the other stuff I'm up to. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking about trying to write a book sort of capturing a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today, actually. Um, and that is the sort of climate in the U.S. in 1941 before Pearl Harbor. Um, because the, the political climate in this country was, was really fraught. I mean, there was actually street violence, um, which was oft, often anti-Semitic, um, but also directed against peaceful protesters in some senses. I mean, there were anti-war protesters who were part of the America First Committee. Um, there was campus violence by young men who feared they were going to be sent to war. There was conscription even before the war had begun. Um, and simultaneously, you have the Roosevelt administration and, and especially FDR himself trying to calmly guide the ship of state through this as, as he's starting his unprecedented third term in office. I mean, almost an unthinkable set of circumstances today. And so I, I also, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. I should have probably mentioned that at the beginning. But this is where Joe DiMaggio, the same, same season Joe DiMaggio, goes on his, uh, his record-breaking uh, hit streak. And all this is happening in the summer of 1941. It's pretty unbelievable. You know, I have, a, I have a book recommendation for you, and it's someone that I just uh, uh, recently interviewed on my other podcast. Um, his name's Rob Fitz, and he did a bunch of work on Japanese baseball. Um, specifically, oh, yeah. has a book about uh, one of the first uh, Japanese uh, baseball club in Los Angeles uh, that was started in, like, I think, 1910. Um, and did a kind of barnstorming tour of the Midwest. And it's totally fascinating because it, it, it's... It brings all of these things together into one place. And um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be very curious to read about Japanese spies in, uh, in California because that's not a history. I mean, I feel, I feel like that hasn't been written about much. It really hasn't, yeah, and partially because the sources are so inaccessible. So I, I fortunately have a collaborator who is who is fluent in Japanese, so that, that's very helpful in that. But uh, on the baseball point, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, the Japanese barnstorming tours were important. And uh, another good recommendation, actually, for, for the Fresno audience is um, the recent biography of Babe Ruth called Big Fella. Actually has a couple pages about Babe Ruth's visit to Fresno. And I believe he actually played a Japanese-American team when he was in Fresno because Fresno, of course, had this large Nisei community. So uh, if you pick up that book, there's a few pages that mention Fireman's Park, which my understanding is it was on the, uh, the outskirts of, of the fairgrounds in Southeast Fresno, but Babe Ruth was there. That's fascinating. Well, thanks for talking to me. I appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. 
All right, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, that means you enjoy this podcast. You should take a minute and give us a rating and review. That can go a long way to helping the sustainability of the podcast, but also helping others find it. And if you feel so called, there's also a Patreon page found at www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best where you can contribute financially. We'll see you next time.